0: Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a sermon series right now called Signs of the Kingdom, where we're taking a look at the seven miraculous signs that Jesus gave in the book of John. What we're learning is that when Jesus performs a miracle, it's never just a miracle. There's always something deeper for us to learn about who God is and about who we are. After all, that's what signs do. They communicate a message. Our prayer is that this sermon will help you know what God is saying to you today. Feel free to reach out to us by emailing hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Now, here's this week's teaching. Amen. you may have a seat. If you have a Bible today, I invite you to grab it and open with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15, and then we're going to jump over to verses 51 to 53, I believe, but I'll know better once I get this iPad open. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. And then we'll look at verses 51 to 53. Here's what it says. Oh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, um, and the ushers will bring you one. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep the one that we give you. We're just thrilled for you to have a copy of Scripture. Here's what it says. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the shore, the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men was, were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, "'Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted.' So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces that were the, of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten." After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. I'll now jump to verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. All of us probably have memories of, um, as children, times where we misunderstood something. I think this is a common occurrence for all children. For example, song lyrics are a pretty classic example. There's a song on the radio right now that we hear sometimes, and the chorus says, God is on the move, on the move, hallelujah. Well, my five-year-old son one day was singing, God is on the moon, on the moon, hallelujah. <laughs> We've all done this. In fact, one person says that when they got to the first grade and had to learn the Pledge of Allegiance, they started wondering, who is this guy named Richard Stanz? Because, I mean, to the Republic for Richard Stands, you'd think I'd heard of him. <laughs> Another kid watched too many cop shows because when they had read the bad guy, his rights, he thought the cops were saying, and anything you say and do, a cannon will be used against you. <laughs> like, don't do anything or they'll shoot you with a cannon. There's <laughs> one from my own life. When I was a kid, we went to the circus and I remember there was a guy going through the stands selling snow cones. And so he's going and he's shouting out, snow cones, snow cones. I, was, I thought he was saying snookums. I was saying the word snookums. And so I'm like, from then on, I was like, mom, can I have a snookums? And it's just kind of in my life become just a general category for all snacks. Anytime I'm hungry, I need a snookums. I actually could use a snookums right now, to be honest. Uh, We're in week four of our series called Signs of the Kingdom, and we're looking at the seven miraculous signs that Jesus performs in the book of John. Our goal is to understand not simply the miracle, but also the message behind the miracle. Because as we talked about through this series, there's always something more. It's not just about Jesus' power to transform bread or multiply bread and fish. There's always some sort of a, a sign, a message, something that God's trying to communicate about what he's doing in the world through the miracle. The book of John makes it clear that we are colossally bad at understanding Jesus and what he's up to. It's not just like the religious leaders who misunderstand Jesus. His own disciples, his closest followers, time and time again, misunderstood what Jesus was doing or what he meant by what he was saying. And so we're going to spend some time this morning unpacking the background of this text that I just read so that hopefully we'll be better able to see what this sign is all about. First of all, it's important for us to realize Uh, that our faith is built upon the history of a small, relatively obscure, uh, ancient Near Eastern nation called Israel. Now, you've of course heard of Israel, um, but back in Israel's day, hardly anyone had heard of Israel. They weren't very big. They weren't particularly powerful. They were no Egypt or Babylon or Assyria or anything like that. But our faith, its roots are entirely in this nation's history. And beliefs. What we call the Old Testament is the story of Israel and their relationship to God. Much of the Old Testament is spent trying to do two things: trying to assure Israel that number one that their God is more powerful than other gods, and number two that their God is faithful and will not abandon them. Those are the two questions that it seems to me most all the Bible, right, all the Old Testament writers are trying to answer for the people of Israel. One of the biggest examples of this is. The story we call the Exodus. In the Exodus, those two questions are answered. Is our God more powerful? Is our God faithful to us? In fact, in the Exodus, this is where, you know, Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They were crying out to God, and God hears their cry. And so, number one, he delivers them over the power of Pharaoh and the power of the gods of Egypt. Shows that he's more powerful than them. And he shows that he's faithful to them, that he has heard their cries. And he does this through the leader, Moses. And uh, remember, they, he, God parts the Red Sea and leads them across through the sea as though on dry ground in order to escape Pharaoh's army. And Israel would then uh, commemorate the day that God delivered them from Egypt with a holiday that they called the Passover. And the Passover was, is for, uh, for Jews what, what uh, Easter is for us. I mean, this is like the high point of the church year. It doesn't get any bigger than Passover. This is the moment that God came and decisively rescued them, decisively overthrew the powers that had bound them. And then once God saves them from Egypt, Israel goes on to wander in the desert. And you know, the people, they they start to grumble. They start to, to question whether or not this God of theirs had good intentions or not. They say, look, we're out here in the middle of the desert. We've got nothing to eat. At least in Egypt, we had like campfires with pots of food on it, you know. This God has just led us out here to die. And so once again, God answers. He shows them his power and his faithfulness. He provides manna from heaven, bread from heaven, and quail as well. And so they they will never go hungry. He gives them exactly what they need to survive. It's a sign. Once again, their God can do anything and he will care for them. But sadly, despite these miracles, Israel's heart doesn't really belong to God. They quickly forget what their God has done. They start to see how powerful other nations are how big other nations are, and they start to think maybe, maybe their God is more powerful than our God. Maybe, maybe we should worship their gods. They don't listen to the prophets. They just do what they want. And so eventually God gives them what they want. He turns them over to worship these other, these other gods. And sure enough, without God among them, they are captured and sent away into exile. But still the questions remain. Will our God leave us or is he faithful? Is our God powerful enough to deliver us from this exile? And the writers, the prophets, are trying to answer these questions. And Israel's sacred writings tell of a savior who would come who would come and deliver them. They call him a Messiah. It simply means anointed one. There would be an anointed one who would be like another Moses, a rescuer who would come and defeat their enemies and deliver them from captivity once again. And listen, John chapter 6, the passage that we just read, is dripping with literary suggestions that would make all the Messiah warning lights start going off in the minds of his hearers. In fact, for someone who knows the Old Testament, John 6 is like a movie that's like full of Easter eggs. Just take a look at all the Old Testament parallels happening here. We've got it on the screen above me so you can kind of follow along. First of all, we learned about the Passover, right? That's like the high point of their of their celebrations. This is the one God rescued them from Egypt. Well, guess what? In verse 4 of our passage, it tells us it was the Passover. And so already we know, okay, this story what Jesus is about to do is happening at the Passover. And you remember in Exodus, the Israelites, they wandered in the wilderness for a while. Well, here we have what's happening is that there's like thousands of people following Jesus throughout the countryside. And so you kind of start to see, okay, so once again, we've got like this huge mass of Israelites wandering around out in the countryside, out in the wilderness, if you will. And so once again, the parallels are starting to take shape. Uh, In Exodus, they complain that they have nothing to eat. And in John, Jesus turns to Philip and says, hey, What are we going to give all these people who have nothing to eat? They're hungry. In Exodus, God provides bread from heaven in the form of manna. And in John, Jesus, what's he do? He provides bread from heaven. He multiplies the bread. In Exodus, the people grumble about not having bread. In John chapter 6, check out verse 41. Here's what it says. It says, at this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Of course, there was 12 tribes in Israel. How many basketfuls did they pick up afterwards? They had 12 basketfuls of leftovers. This is God reconstituting the nation of Israel in abundance, it's telling us. And of course, how did God deliver his people from Egypt? Well, he parted the Red Sea and they walked through the sea as though on dry ground. Well, you know what's right smack in the middle of John chapter 6. The story where his disciples are out in the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes up and sure enough they look up to see Jesus walking on the water as though on dry ground. And so what we have here is simply too many parallels to miss the fact that what they have been waiting for is happening in Jesus. John chapter 6 is this huge neon blinking Messiah sign. And the people, they catch on pretty quick. It doesn't take them long to figure out what's going on. In fact, it says they're going to try to force Jesus to be their king. It says in verse fourteen fifteen. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. This is the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. So in one moment, we see how incredibly close the people came to understanding, to seeing the truth, to seeing who Jesus was, but also how badly they misunderstood what Jesus was doing. They realized that the Messiah had come, but they misunderstand what that meant. They're so close, yet they're so far, they're singing God is on the moon. Like, you almost had it. You're almost there. But just imagine how exciting it must have been. It's Passover. You've got the miraculous manna from heaven. You've got the 12 basketfuls. You've got the crossing of the sea. It's just so obvious. The Messiah is here. Make him king now. Let's go. By the end of chapter 6, the people will have gone from trying to make Jesus their king to abandoning him by the masses. They will look at him And his followers will say, this is a hard teaching, and they will leave him. They thought Jesus was the one who would give them an endless supply of bread for their stomachs, like Moses in the desert. But Jesus wants to push them a step further. He tells them that he's not just the one who gives them the bread. He is the bread, he says. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And, of course, the people are like, okay, that's a little weird and kind of gross, honestly, Jesus. Come on, do that bread trick again. He doubles down. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Wow, that's a jarring metaphor, isn't it? And here's the point. J- true satisfaction is found only in Jesus. Jesus. It's not found in the power that you're chasing or in the money that you crave and the freedom that you want. Israel wanted a king, but the reason they wanted a king is because of what that king would do for them. And Jesus says to them, look, I'm not here to do your bidding. If you want satisfaction in life, you need to orient yourself around me. I am your nourishment. The people were believing in Jesus because they believed Jesus could give them what they wanted. They wanted Jesus for what Jesus could do for them, but Jesus refuses to budge. Instead, Jesus told them they must budge. They wanted a king to defeat other kings. Instead, they got Jesus who wouldn't fight. In fact, later in the book of John would say, hey, my kingdom is not of this world. They wanted a miracle worker to satiate their appetites. Instead, they got someone who simply offers himself. They were disappointed, so they left him. We recently bought a puppy, which you all know because I've used this as an illustration for like the last four weeks in a row. I don't know, I'm, just, I'm getting so much material out of this puppy. Um, <laughs> he's a four-month-old golden doodle. And he can be a handful. And so we are, we've been training him, you know, which I really think is fun. And it's like, you're communicating with another species. That's crazy, right? And so we're training him. One of the first things that I learned to do, and we got him signed up for classes next month. I'm excited about that. But here's one of the first things you learn to do. is, you, Whenever you want the dog to come or to sit or whatever, you, you say, look at me look at me, Theo. Try to get their attention to lock eyes with you. You Try to teach them how to like hold that, that look for a while in order to make sure that you're the one that they're focused on. And Theo does really well with that as long as it's just like my family alone in our house. But as soon as we go outside and you've got all the smells and all the birds and the squirrels and the other dogs and the cars honking and every other distraction in the world, it's like he, does, he wants to look everywhere except at me. And Jesus comes here in this passage, and he's saying, look at me. And the Jews at the time were like, ooh, power, yes, we want that. And Jesus says, no, look at me. And you and I are like, ooh, money, ooh, endless supply of streaming shows at our fingertips. Hey, politics is crazy again, let's go fight about it. And Jesus is just like, look at me, look at me. He wants you to orient your life around him. He wants you to trust him. He is the source of your nourishment and life, not money or power or politics or status, not even religious forms like church. All of this stuff is meaningless without him. If we don't orient our lives around him, he is the bread that has come down from heaven. He will nourish you in the desert of life. I recently heard a, um, there's a, a writer who, who, he's talking about the way, I heard on a podcast, he's talking about the way that our understanding of ourselves has changed in just the last few decades, as compared to the way that humans have understood ourselves essentially for all of human history up to this point. There's been something of a a revolution in our anthropology in the way that we understand ourselves. And and what he talked about was how for most of human history, in fact, like every every religion, you know, uh, has this sense that humans are sinful, that we have this darkness within us, that we exist in error, And that we need to be redeemed from that one way or another. And so, of course, different religious systems have their different ideas about how that kind of salvation occurs. Christianity is, I find, rather unique in that, you know, God comes down to us in order to rescue us. And you can't really find anything like that anywhere else. Uh, But nonetheless, he's talking about how the one thing we agree on is that we're broken. Like there's something wrong with us, you know. And, And so we've understood that life is about this kind of struggle to acquire virtue, kind of a, a, a long journey, if you will. Um, now, as Christians, we believe that this happens through the empowering of the Holy Spirit as we make ourselves available to God through disciplines and sacraments and that kind of thing um, where we can receive his grace. But no matter the religion, there's always this struggle toward healing, toward virtue. There's, there's a journey of formation that we must go on in, as we seek to be freed from the darkness within us. But in the last few decades, there's been a rather unprecedented change and our understanding of ourselves. See, for, whereas for most of history, we believe that our, our urges, my, my inclinations, my, my thoughts, and my fantasies need to be chastened, need to be disciplined, need to be brought into order, whatever language you might choose, need to be redirected. We now live in an era where those urges are actually considered essentially good. This is very different. Today, what's seen as wrong is the act of stifling or containing those urges. Virtue is often seen as simply having the courage and having the freedom to express those urges, no matter the case. The suggestion that we should chasten these impulses is often bristled against. This is a drastic change in how we've understood ourselves to be. Yesterday, I saw an image on Facebook. It said this. It said, repeat after me, I am allowed to make a big deal out of things that feel big to me. I am allowed to make a big deal out of things that feel big to me. Now, the person who shared the image um, was agreeing but also critiquing, right, that, what, what that line says. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, we shouldn't dismiss people's feelings, You know, like we should take seriously how certain things make people feel. But at the same time, she pointed out how, look, it's important to teach my child that they don't get to throw their cup across the room just because they don't like the color of the cup. Sometimes something feels big to us when it isn't actually a big deal. Emotional maturity is about learning the difference. And hopefully we're in this process of kind of trying to uh, align our reactions and our feelings with what is actually the case. And so today, it seems like, largely, sometimes at least, the only criteria for determining whether our impulses are true and good is simply the fact that we're having them. That's all we need sometimes to judge that they are correct. And what this means is that we now find ourselves in a place where we get profoundly discouraged when we realize that no matter how hard we try, we can never satiate those appetites. We can never find satisfaction in ourselves. These things that we feel in us can never be fully satisfied. We're stuck in an eternal feedback loop. We pursue satisfaction by following our appetites, but we can't find it because our appetites are never really satisfied. Think about the moments for a moment. Think about the moments in your life where you truly felt satisfied, truly felt that, I don't know, feeling of contentment, at least for a while my guess is that it usually doesn't happen after eating a whole bag of Doritos or half a dozen donuts. Like why is that? I mean I bet it sounded like a good idea before you did it. But then afterwards you're like, what in the world was I thinking, you know? Well you're just following your appetites. But I bet that the moments in your life where you've truly felt satisfied is often after a, uh, the completion of a long, arduous journey. You graduate from college, you have a baby, you retire. And in those moments, we at least for a moment feel like oh, life is good. Why, why is that? Why can't I feel satisfied after binge watching Netflix or after eating a bag of Doritos? Why doesn't that satisfy me? Why must it require time and effort? in order to feel satisfaction. And I think it has to do with the fact that we are eternal beings. Like God made us for the long game, you know? Listen, God hardwired us to thrive not off the instantaneous thrill, but the long, arduous ascent toward him. Your life is not simply the handful of decades you'll spend on this earth. Your life will go on forever. Your life is a never-ending ascent toward God. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to train ourselves to move farther and farther towards God. Your destiny is to spend eternity journeying closer and closer to the source of true life. And when we tap into those moments in life where we, we put off our instant gratification or we discipline our urges in order to accomplish something truly great, we get like this kind of fleeting glimpse of true satisfaction that comes by viewing life through the lens of eternity. Because listen, true satisfaction doesn't come by feeding your impulses, but by pointing your impulses to Jesus. The crowds were just interested in getting more bread from Jesus. They just wanted to be they just wanted their fix right now. Jesus wanted to show them something deeper than how to fill their stomachs. He wanted to show them that he could fill their souls. This is why, this is why we do funny things, Christians, like we, we fast. Natalie and I were fasting a few weeks ago, and when we told our kids we weren't eating, it blew their minds, like, they they had no category for this. What? You're not going to eat anything for dinner? And we got to share with them, look, when I feel the pangs of hunger in my belly, I'm using that as a springboard to prayer right now. I'm trying to train myself that every time I feel the urge to eat, I'm going to redirect that towards Christ. And soon that urge won't have the same control over me that it had on me before. With practice, the hope is that those impulses won't conquer me. Like God will have conquered me. And so I have just one uh, reflection question that I want to float to you all. uh, In order to kind of ask yourself, where do I find true satisfaction in life? Where do I place my satisfaction? Is it in Christ? Is it in other things? Ask yourself this question, would you? How well do I suffer? How well do I suffer? How do you do when things fall apart? Does it drive you to your knees? Does it drive your faith out the door? The reason suffering is a good measuring stick is because in those moments it is often revealed to us what truly motivates our faith. The way we suffer tends to reveal where we find our deepest satisfaction in life. And if it's in the comforts of this life, then satisfaction is going to be very hard to find. James writes, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so the New Testament writers over and over and over again, that's one example, there's many examples. They they constantly have this perspective on suffering that sounds really weird to us. See, for them, suffering is an opportunity. It's an opportunity because it can be a doorway to knowing God more. That's only possible if Jesus is our true and highest source of satisfaction in life. Suffering for suffering's sake isn't going to do it. But suffering, as we cling to Jesus, can be transformative. Natalie and I walked through a long season of intense disappointment and frustration. It had to do with our adoption process. It lasted for years. And I remember in that season, I was was pastoring in a church, and I kind of zoomed out a little bit from myself. I was like, if I were pastoring myself right now, what would I say? You know, and, and I kind of thought, okay, here's a chance to see how Phil Wiseman holds up, right? When all of the things that often happen to the people that I lead happens to me. And I vowed to ask myself the question, am I suffering well? Am I suffering faithfully? Is my, or is my faith contingent upon things going well for me? What happens if I don't get the result that we want? Which was almost unthinkable. But in the end, I I, I decided I'm going to surrender it all to him. And look, today, even though it was long two and a half years um, where we did not know the status of our adoption ultimately, I can tell you that those moments, even though they were at times very awful, also helped stir in me the faith that I have today. For 13 years, I met with a man named Norman. He was my spiritual mentor. Norman was 79 years old when I first met him. Uh, I think I was 22 when we first met. And he passed away just a couple years ago. Um, so he was elderly for our entire relationship. Norman would talk a lot about death, probably because it was on his mind a lot. But the thing I noticed about Norman is, is probably more than anyone else I've ever met, Norman could talk about death in almost kind of this, this jovial way. He'd talk about it, but it was never, it was never sad. It was never despairing he was almost kid with me about about death. I said to him once, I said, Norman, I've never met anybody who talks more lightly about death than you. He said, well, Phil, you know, I see it as the next great adventure. And then he said, I don't even buy green bananas anymore. Okay. (laughs) It took me a minute, too. And uh, when I asked him, When I asked him, how how do you get to that place in life? And he just said, look, Jesus has been enough for me for so long. There's no longer any doubt in my mind that he'll be enough for me then. I remember the last time that I saw Norman before he died. He was very sick. um, 92 years old, I think, at that point. Uh, He was lying I went to his apartment, he was lying flat on his bed, staring straight up the ceiling, Didn't, couldn't look right or left, um, but he heard me come in, so he kind of called out to me from back in his room, so I went back there and, and saw him lying there, and, um, and, and I walked into his room, and he just reached up his hand like this for me to take, and I don't remember much from that last conversation, honestly, I wish I did, I wish I would have recorded it, but um, he, I remember that he said multiple times, oh Phil, I'm so glad that you're here, Oh Phil, I'm so glad that you're here. Because Norman had found so much satisfaction in Jesus that even as he lied on his deathbed, he just wanted to pour into me. Look, I'm not there. <laughs> I hope that we all get there. But I at least know it's possible. I at least know because of the testimony and the witness of Norman that that kind of satisfaction in Jesus is possible. This comes after having lost his wife just a few months prior. His wife of, I don't know, 50-some years probably. He says, oh, Phil, I'm so glad you're here. Norman rarely ever complained about his illness. He would just tell me what's going on if I asked him. But when I came to sit down, he'd just want to say, okay, how are you doing? Because Norman had found his satisfaction entirely in Jesus. When Jesus is your source of satisfaction, nothing can take that away. He is the true bread that came down from heaven. So where do you find your satisfaction in life? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to start doing? What distractions do you need to get rid of right now? It's the season of Lent. This is a time where Christians traditionally do something to chasten those appetites. Maybe you'll fast or something like that. Maybe you'll give something up. But what is it that's kind of got you right now? Instead of Jesus, we're going to take communion today, and I want to invite you to think about that and to lay that before Christ before you come to the communion table. What does it mean for you to find all of your satisfaction in Jesus Christ today? No matter what you're going through, how can you suffer well through it? So the communion tables, you'll notice, are in a little different place. They're back here in the middle um, rather than up front because we got some stuff going on down here, obviously. And so as the band plays, I'm just going to tell you to, you can go and grab communion whenever you feel led during this next song. Um, but as you do it, remember that Jesus told us in our passage today. To, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's talking about this. He's talking about the fact that in this sacrament, in this ritual that we do, that there is a tremendous grace to be found, that we can actually encounter God here. And so, I'm gonna be praying for your freedom and for your healing as you come to the communion table today. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, it's hard. It's hard for us to um, let go of the things of this world, but we know that you are more than enough for us continually train us and show us what it means to be creatures who do exist necessarily in this world, whose lives are contingent upon things like food and relationships and shelter and all jobs. All those things matter. We need all those things. And yet there's a plane that we can reach where we understand those things in their proper place as compared to you. We understand, number one, that you are the giver of all good gifts. And number two, that Even if all of those things were to fade away, if we still have you, God, then we're going to be okay. And in all of my fears and anxieties and doubts and all worries, all those, those things, God, it's hard to remember that. It's hard to really believe it. And so as we come to your table, Lord, as we eat the bread and drink from the cup, God, may that sink down deep into us. Give us the grace to know it even more. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.